and we want to continue to do so. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it says, For if, talking about uh, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, for if or since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, Therefore, as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the, the church world, um, since the beginning, I guess, since Jesus' resurrection for the last 2,000 years, the church world has understood and or defined righteousness as right behavior. But that's not what righteousness is. Righteousness is right standing. When the Bible says that we've been made righteous in the sight of God or made the righteousness of God, that simply means that we have right standing before God. That means we stand before him blameless, without guilt, without any sense of shame, because he's made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, the Bible says, he is a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. Now, Paul uses... Um, it goes to great lengths to show us the comparison of what Jesus did through his sacrifice and what Adam did when he fell in the Garden of Eden. We know the, the Bible tells us the story of creation in the beginning of Genesis. And we see that God made everything that there was here on the earth and then put Adam in the middle of it. Now, I know we don't use this terminology very often. Maybe we should. But when God created the earth and made everything that was in it, he made it, the, he made it the way he wanted it to be. So we could say without fear of contradiction that before the fall, the earth was the kingdom of God. That would have to be true, would it not? The earth was the kingdom of God. And things operated on the earth the way he wanted them to. Now we know that changed. Because when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said uh, early in the prayer, he said to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see through the fall and the progression of mankind, progression of history, since the time of the fall, that the earth ceased to be the kingdom of God. At least in its entirety and in the fullness of its measure when, as it began so what does that mean to us when we look at creation we look at God's original intent and the Bible says God never changes so whatever God's original intent was is his present day intent what did God want God wanted the earth to be ruled and dominated by righteous men and women Man was created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says that let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. God specifically created man, a duplicate and a copy of himself, to exercise authority and dominion on the earth. That was God's original plan. That, a portion of that changed. I don't, think the, I don't think everything changed the way that we think that it has. I used to preach that man lost his authority, his position of authority 
at the fall. But that can't be right. If man was not in charge, if man didn't have some element of authority or dominion, following the fall of man, following the sin in the Garden of Eden, then how could God say, I'll deal with you according to the words you've spoken in my ears? Why would God say life and death are set before you choose life? If the devil's the one that has authority. Now I know what, uh, I know what the Bible says. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said that Satan is the god of this world. But the word that he used for world is not planet. It's not talking about the earth. It's not even talking about the, the world order or system that was created. It's talking about a time period. Satan has authority or operates in this world for a specific period of time. And that time's coming to an end. That's good news just in that, isn't it? And the only way the devil can operate or be effective to bring about his plan and his agenda is to deceive man into using his authority in the wrong way. Or maybe we should say misusing his authority. That's the only threat. That's the only power that he has. If he can't convince you to do wrong, he has no hold on you whatsoever. He's a deceiver. If Satan had the authority to control the world, even in, in calamities and, and earthquakes and tornadoes and disasters like that, why wouldn't he just make one big earthquake and destroy the world all at once? He doesn't have that kind of power. We've given him credit for a lot of power that he doesn't have, I believe. And so God's plan was to restore mankind to his original place. Now, the only way he could do that is to make man righteous because man started off righteous. Man started off with right standing before God. He lost that right standing through sin and death, spiritual death, passed upon all men. We all became subject to spiritual death and its consequences, the results of it. But that's not how things were in the beginning. Now, it helps me understand that. And I'm, I'm still seeing things as I go. And I, there are some parts of this that the Lord won't turn me loose on. He's keeping me in the same spot. It's getting hard for me to find titles for these messages because I keep saying the same thing over and over again. But the Lord won't let me go. There's still things that we need to see. So think about when God made man. He put him in the Garden of Eden. He breathed into him the breath of life, literally his spirit. He imparted his spirit into man, and he became a living soul. He was made in the image and the likeness of God. He was a righteous man. He did not know sin. Now, we know that man was placed in the garden to, to exercise dominion. We also know that since he's made in the image and likeness of God, that dominion must be exercised the same way that God did when he created the world. The Bible says God created the world with words. Everything about this natural realm, this physical realm that we see and hear and feel and touch was made from unseen forces called words. Well, then man must have operated the same way God did. It wouldn't be like God in his image or in his likeness for man to operate in a different way. But when man, Adam, was placed in the Garden of Eden, it's interesting to me 
that the Bible doesn't tell us about what God talked to him about. It says that God walked with him in the cool of the day, in the evenings. He'd walk with him, and those conversations, I hope they're on tape somewhere in heaven. I want to hear some of that. But if, he's made, if man is made in the image and likeness of God, if he's righteous because of God imparting his own life into Adam, which he was, then he had no need to be taught by God. Well, God's the only one that could have taught him. But he had no need to be taught by God about faith. Faith was an unknown, unknown commodity. It's just the way things worked. God didn't have to show him through a series of 26 lessons or whatever the case is what faith is and how faith works. Adam just operated the way God did because he was made in the image and likeness of God. Faith only became an issue after the fall. Before then, it's just the way things worked. It's just the way that Adam was created to be. That would have to be true, would it not? Now, the Bible gives us some outstanding information about faith, what it is, how it works, and so forth. But that's because we've experienced sin. We've experienced the law of sin and death that was passed down from Adam through his transgression. And so it became very, very important for us to understand how faith works and the importance of speaking according to what we don't see, but speaking according to what God said. But man's default position, his original position, by virtue of the fact that he was the righteousness of God in his creation, faith was the default position. When Adam and Eve fell, it says that they saw that they were, their eyes were opened, they saw they were naked, and they were ashamed. They, they began to fear. They became self-aware in a negative sense. They became aware of their shortcomings. They became aware of their failures. And fear and doubt entered into the world. Fear and doubt are, in a, uh, the, are a consequence, a result of spiritual death. And that passed upon all of us. Man was operating according to the righteousness of God, just being like God. The Bible talks about, Jesus talked about having the faith of God. That didn't need to be defined for Adam. Because he had right standing before God. They became fearful. They became aware of their shortcomings. They became brutally aware that the kingdom of God had been altered by a new spiritual force called spiritual death. If you look in the Bible, you'll see over and over and over again where the Bible speaks of sin, not in terms that we, the church, define it. Paul wrote to the church, to those that had been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, and he said, the ones that are lying, quit lying. The ones that are stealing, quit stealing. The ones that are doing wrong, fix that. But that had nothing to do with their righteousness. 
It had nothing to do with the right standing before God. Our right standing before God, the Bible tells us, is as a result of Jesus' blood and nothing else. It was only after the fall that man began to try to find ways to get back to God. He saw that he was separated from God, so he tried to come up with anything and everything he could think of to get back to God. That's why the Bible calls unbelief evil. It doesn't call sin evil. Because sin, sinful behavior, sinful actions are simply a result of spiritual death entering into the world. Now we know that there's no way for God to do his will, accomplish his will, fulfill his plan for mankind, for you, me, for everybody. There's no way that God can, uh, can accomplish that except through our faith. So unbelief, fear and doubt are God's greatest enemy because it hinders him, it prevents him from carrying out his plan and purpose in the earth for you, for me, for everybody. You remember in the um, book of Hebrews, Paul wrote to the church uh, talking about using the example of the children of Israel rebelling against God when they got to the edge of the promised land. They wouldn't go in. The Bible calls that what they um, came back and said. It talks about how that the, the Bible gives the story, the account, of how that they said, we can't take the land, there's giants in the land. The Bible calls that an evil heart of unbelief. And it had nothing to do with behavior. It had everything to do with their words. The evil heart of unbelief, the enemy of God in this earth is fear and doubt because it stops him from bringing to pass that which he intended the world to be. What I'm trying to get to, and I keep thinking if I say it a different way, it'll come out clearer, and I'm not sure it is. But when you and I were made righteous, God reset our default position. We became believers. No longer are we supposed to operate according to the things that we can see and feel, but instead operate according to the Word of God. Now turn with me over to John chapter 6. I want you to see something. Jesus, is, and I, I guess I better give you the background on this account. Jesus has fed the 5,000 gathered up everything that was left, 12 baskets full of stuff that was left, one account tells us, Luke's account says. And then he sent his disciples away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He was in Tiberias, and then he uh, sent them away to the other side, and he stayed behind. Now, during the night, he came back to them. They saw him walking on the water, and he came into the boat, and John says the boat instantly got to the other side. The boat was transported, translated, whatever word you want to use, beamed from one position to another. Beam me up, Scotty. Now, when the next day came around, the people that were on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and saw that Jesus didn't go with his disciples, now they find that he's not there in Tiberias. And so they make arrangements to get to the other side, and they question him about, how'd you get here? 
And he doesn't say anything to them about that. It really doesn't answer the question. But I want you to see what, uh, um, well, let me start reading with verse 25. John chapter 6, verse 25. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? How'd you get here? You were with us on the other side of the sea last night. Now here you are. How'd you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and, and were filled. Jesus brings an indictment against these people. He says, you're not even following me because of the miracles. You're following me because of the miracle that I did yesterday with the loaves and the fishes. You're looking for a free lunch. Then notice what he said. Verse 27, he said, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures under everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now, I want you to notice that word labor. The word labor means work. He said, don't work for stuff that provides for you here on the earth alone. Now, he's just indicated that these people don't really have a right heart, a right heart toward him. You're not looking for me because of the miracles. You're not assessing or identifying why the miracles are happening. You just got excited by the loaves and the fishes, and you want that again. He's already chastised them, rebuked them, if you will, because they're working for natural things only. And he tries to correct that. He says, you should labor for, you should work toward eternal things not just natural things now he's not saying that we don't need to take care of ourselves in the natural realm we do we're going to have to work a job and provide money to pay for a house or clothes for the kids or whatever it is those are necessary things but remember what jesus said about that he said that if we'd seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness then all that stuff would be added to us so it can't be the main focus the primary focus of our lives now notice what happens after that then said they, verse 28, then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Give us something to do, Jesus. You just said that our heart's in the wrong place about this, concerning the loaves and the fishes and, and the miracles and such. What should we do? Give us something to do. Everybody's looking for something to do to make them right before God. Everybody's looking for something to do to please God. And notice what Jesus said. He said, here's the only work that you should do. This is the work of God. What, Jesus? We're ready to do it. Is it spend more time in prayer? Well, that's a good thing, but that's not it. Is it to read our Bible every day? Well, that's a good thing, but that's not it. What should we do? Give us something to do. Folks, I would submit to you that ever since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, man's been looking for something to do to make him feel like he's okay with God, to make him feel like he has some semblance, some measure, some inkling of right standing before God. What we had to begin with, but lost through Adam. So what should we do, Jesus? Tell us what to do that we can work the works of God. Maybe there's a cry in here by the people saying, well, we don't want our heart to be in the wrong place. We don't want to be just earthly minded instead of spiritually minded. 
That's not the way we want it to be. So tell us, what can we do to be in the right place with God? This is the work of God, Jesus said, that you believe. That you believe on him whom he has sent. That's the only work that there is that pleases God, according to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And remember, the Bible says over and over again, the just, those that have been made righteous, shall live by faith. That's the only work there is, folks, to believe. To believe on him that God has sent. It says of Abraham that he believed the Lord, he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Hebrews 11 gives us a whole long list of people that made a lot of mistakes in their lives. Lived the kind of life that we would certainly consider to be sinful in, certain, in many respects. But they're on the, Hebrew, the heroes of fame list. Because there's something that happened in their lives where they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. Abraham just simply took God at his word and he acted like it was true. And God counted that to him as righteousness. Well, righteousness isn't counted to us. It's obtained because of the finished work of Jesus. It's obtained simply because we believe. We believe in his sacrifice. We believe in the shedding of his blood. We believe in the purposes for a sacrifice and the shedding of his blood, according to what the Bible says. Therefore, it's not counted to us as righteousness. We're made righteous. But now back to our text scriptures. It's not just, the Bible doesn't just talk about righteousness so that we can be okay with God. It talks about righteousness as the foundation for reigning in life. It talks about righteousness as the foundation for exercising authority and dominion in the earth. God's plan for mankind never changed. He never stopped wanting man to have dominion and authority on the earth. But when man became dominated by spiritual death and the consequences thereof, he didn't have any right standing before God. He couldn't be right before God. So God created covenants. God gave him animals to kill and a ritual schedule so that once a year they'd, they'd be able to, to say that their sins were forgiven because of the killing or the sacrifice of a goat or a lamb or whatever it is. So God made ways for man to temporarily be relieved from his unrighteous nature. But that's not the way it is for us. We're made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Now, folks, whether we ever feel righteous or not, we've been made righteous by Jesus' blood. We've entered into that place where we should have dominion and authority, where we should reign in life by Jesus Christ. Whether we ever feel it or not, whether we ever live up to it or not, that's who we've been made. That's who we've been made. Jesus was sent to the earth to restore man to his original condition. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one. There was no way out of it. Spiritual death reigned on all of mankind. It reigned over all of the earth. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. 
shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. That's what I can't get away from. It doesn't matter what subject I start with. It doesn't matter where in the Bible I begin to read. I always come back to that same thing. There's so much more in this verse. There's so much more in what God has provided for us than we're taking advantage of. That we're believing for. Well, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. There's only one way that we can get to the place that we're really supposed to be and really supposed to live. And that is by hearing it and hearing it and hearing it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. Not just faith comes by having heard. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Paul, after talking about his own struggle with sin, he concludes, comes to the conclusion that most Christians probably never get. He realized that the real man on the inside, the spirit of man that had been recreated, his spirit that had been recreated, in which the the life of God had been imparted to, made new, by the sacrifice of Jesus, by accepting and believing in the sacrifice of Jesus. He came to understand that's the real man, the one that's been made righteous. The man on the outside, the body, the flesh, and the unrenewed mind that's been tainted, affected, and experienced sin that seem to be operating in some cases and at some times outside of his control. Now, by that, I don't mean he couldn't stop his body from doing something. I just mean that more often than not, he was in the situation that, like we are where he stumbled into sin that he resented, that he condemned himself for entering into. So Paul says, comes to the realization that somebody's going to have to deliver him. He ends chapter 7 by saying, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Who will deliver me from the body, the flesh, the natural man that's been affected by sin, spiritual death and its consequences? The part of man that Satan still has influence over. Who's going to deliver me from this? Thank God it's Jesus. And he says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. I've made this comment before, and I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But the last phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, was taken from verse 4 and placed in verse 1 by the translators. I can only surmise or speculate that when they read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, they said, there's got to be something more than just what's written there. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Well, that would stand, uh, it would be understandable for them to take that position because that's the position the church world has taken for 2,000 years. There's got to be something we can do. There's got to be some work we can work that will bring us back to a place of right standing with God. But remember what Jesus told them in John chapter 6. There's only one thing to do. There's only one work, and that is to believe on him whom God sent. He identifies further in this chapter, about verse 5 or 6, he identifies that they're not in the flesh. The phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, is not a works thing. It's not a life behavior. It's not a lifestyle. 
He defines it. He says, you're not in the flesh if you've made Jesus your Lord. Now, folks, I, I, I have to keep emphasizing this because I don't, don't want to be misunderstood. And there's, there's a small percentage, very small percentage of people that are looking for an excuse to just live any ungodly way they want to and say, well, I'm still all right with God. Well, I'm not their judge. I'm not in a position to say to you or anybody else that the things that you're doing, the behavior that you're in, uh, undertaking or involved in is displeasing to God. But I am here to tell you that righteousness is a condition. It's a nature. It's not a behavior. So he says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Paul came to the realization that he was righteous even though he was doing things that his, that his spirit resented his body doing. Now, if that doesn't define the human condition of the modern-day Christian, I don't know what does. That's what we all struggle against. The experience that we have with sin in our flesh because of the fact that we were once spiritually dead is the thing that we struggle with if our heart's right toward God. It's the thing that we have to learn to overcome and overlook if we're going to stand in the place that righteousness provides for us. So Paul says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He comes to the realization, I'm okay with God, even though my body does stuff that I hate it doing. Even though my body does things that I have to repent of over and over and over again. Now look at why. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law. I want you to see their spiritual laws. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law, the thing that we've always tried to work to get, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And again, he defines walking after the Spirit as accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's not talking about life's behaviors. So what is the law of the Spirit of life if not righteousness? It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that's make us, that has made us free from the law of sin and death. The end result of that being made free is so that the righteousness, which the law couldn't provide because nobody could keep it, but the righteousness that was promised through the law might be fulfilled in us. Is he not defining the law of sin and death? I'm sorry, the, the conquering of the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus as righteousness? Isn't he? He's literally saying the righteousness which comes by making Jesus the Lord of your life is the thing that breaks the hold of the law of sin and death over you. But would, would we go so far as to say only those who understand the righteousness of God, who understand that we've been made righteous, will ever be free from the law of sin and death? 
I believe that's what he's saying. I believe he's showing us his own journey and the realization, the understanding that he gains by the work of Jesus being so complete that it makes us righteous by nature. It brings us back into the place where we are conformed to the image of Christ. We are the same nature of Jesus, the same spiritual nature, the same righteousness that Jesus has is what we have. And that's what makes us free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus could very, just as easily, according to these scriptures, could just as easily be identified as the law of righteousness in him. Because that's what happens. You get born again, you, get, you become righteous. You become holy. You become holy. Now turn with me over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I especially appreciate John's writings concerning this subject and, and even the gospel of John. The gospel of John came alive to me when I realized the history behind it. And here's what I mean by that. We know the approximate times when the four gospels were written. Mark was probably first, Matthew was second, Luke was third. Chronologically. John's was way, way later. John's was like 60-something years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, John was an old man. He was in his 90s at the time, probably 94, 95, something like that, lived a long life. And John knew by that time all of the books that we have in our Bible. He knew of the other gospel accounts that had been written. He had read them himself. He knew the writings of Paul and Peter. He knew of the book of Acts that had been compiled and composed by Luke, the physician. He knew all these things. Well, then why did he write his own gospel? Why did the Holy Ghost impress upon him to write the gospel of John? I think it was to complete the story. I believe it was to give us an eyewitness account of things that other people referred to but didn't experience by being there. And he tells us things that the other gospel writers missed. So when John writes his letters to the church, when he writes the gospel and the, the letter that bears his name to the church, it's almost a summation of things that have been written up, up until that point. I mean, if I want to know about the last night Jesus was here on the earth with his disciples, I'd rather get that information from somebody that was there, wouldn't you? Now, don't get me wrong. The Holy Ghost was there, and so the Holy Ghost inspired the other writers to tell us too. But John fills in a lot of blanks. He talks more about the Holy Ghost than the other writers. He talks more about the unbelief that Jesus encountered, even among the 12, than any of the others. So notice what John writes to the church, beginning in verse 1, 1 John 1, 1. He said, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. We saw him. We touched him. We experienced his ministry with him. Verse 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He's talking about Jesus, the person of Jesus. 
That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. Notice this next phrase, that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, the word fellowship is the word koinonia. It means communion. It literally means partners, equal partners. He said, that which we've seen and heard of Jesus, that which we experienced of his ministry here on the earth, we've declared unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now let me ask you something. I know that we all experience the same feelings. I know that we all experience the same thoughts and and hear the same words from the devil concerning our unworthiness or concerning where we fall short or don't measure up or whatever. I know we all hear the same voices. The reason we hear those same voices is because the devil does not want us to find out who we really are. Because if you find out who you really are, you're going to turn your world upside down. Which is exactly why Jesus left us here after we got saved. He said, occupy till I come. Turn your world upside down because of who you are in me. But notice that these things, John said these things were written so that we'd understand. And so we'd have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, how could you have fellowship? How could you be partners? For me, this goes back to being created in the image and likeness of God. Man was originally created in the image of likeness of God. He fell. Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could be born again, recreated as the image and likeness of God. The Bible talks about putting on the new man which was created in righteousness. We've been born again and restored to that original condition in the image and likeness of God. Not just spirit because God's spirit. We were spiritual. We were still spirits, eternal spirits when we were dead in sin. No, he's talking about something else. He's talking about the kind of fellowship that Jesus had with his father when he was here on the earth. Now, how could you have that? How could anybody have that? How could anybody expect to have fellowship with the father if we weren't righteous? In the Old Testament, Moses wanted to see the face of God. He asked the Lord. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And God answers him and says, you can't see my face and live. No man can look on the face of God and live. Well, you can understand how that could be true since man was spiritually dead. And that's what God is saying. He's saying as long as man is spiritually dead, he'll die if he looks on my face. But John talks about fellowship. He talks about being partners. He doesn't talk about God withholding his face or withholding his glory or any knowledge or any power or anything of that nature. Because now we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now you can look upon his face. Jesus told the story of the wines and the wineskins. He said, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. Using that as an illustration of the spirit of God living in us. Man has, man's spirit has to be born again. It has to be recreated so that it could stand the life of God, the spirit of God being poured out into him. Thank God we were.
Thank God we were. Now again, the Bible talks about right living. But it does not talk about right living in order to be right with God. And I'm sure there are those, I hope there's not many of them, but I'm sure there are those who now that they're born again, now that they're saved, now that heaven is safe for them, have the attitude that God, for God to just get out of the way, just leave me alone, I'm saved now, I know I'm going to heaven, let me live my life and experience as much of the world down here as I want to and try to make things fun. I know there are those that are out there doing that. I know there are those that use certain teachings of the Bible to justify what they're doing. But that's not the person I'm talking to. I have one message for people that are in that situation. Good luck with that. Because we still have to answer to God for our works. We still have to answer for whether or not we operate according to natural works, works according to the world, or eternal works. That doesn't change. Whether you live right or you live wrong, that doesn't change. So if somebody wants to follow that route and roll the dice until that occasion, okay, suit yourself. But I want to live right, don't you? I've been in both places. I've been in places where I wasn't living right, and now I am living right, and living right just feels cleaner. But folks, I'm not trying to live right to make points with God. I want to live right to bloody the devil's nose. That's the reason why I want to do good. That's the reason why I want the love of God to dominate me. That's the reason why I want all the the benefits and attributes and characteristics of God that are identified as the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in my life. I'm not trying to make points with God. I'm just trying to live up to who he's made me to be. It's so funny to me how people will argue about stuff. Well, you know, when it comes to drinking, it's made from all natural stuff. It's made from grain and corn, and God created that. And pastor, even marijuana is a plant that God made. Okay. You know, I've never seen anybody at the end of their life say, you know, I wish I'd drunk more. Wish I'd used more drugs. Wish I'd partied harder. Those are not the things that matter at the end of your life. I know some people go to an extreme and say, it brings me closer to God when I have a glass of wine. (laughs) That must be some kind of wine. (laughs) Yeah, pastor, we're saved. We've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We can just go out and uh, go and stay out all night and drink and carouse and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, there's wonderful things that happen at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when you've been drinking. You can count on that. That'll always be a real plus to your life. Now, I want to conquer those things to live up to who God's made me to be. Don't you? So I, I'm not really even concerned about the people that want to take advantage of the message. 
to act like that it's okay with God and okay with them. I would suggest that somebody pray and find out what God tells them. But nobody does. People have already got their mind made up about what they think about it. Well, Pastor Mike, that may be your position, but you're a pastor. Yeah. But it would be my position no matter what I was doing. But again, it's not so that I can make points with God. I live in a lot of the ways that I live to benefit my family. To set the right example for my kids. One of the reasons I won't drink and do some other stuff is because I don't want your kids to ever come come to you and say, well, Pastor Mike does. There's no shortage of people that they can use as an example, but they're not going to use me. Not like that. But it comes back to fellowship. It comes back to being partners with God. All the things that John said he's seen and heard and testified unto them was so that they could have fellowship. How could an unrighteous or an unholy person have fellowship, partnership, with God. Now he does not use the word relationship. If he used the word relationship, then he would be talking about the new birth experience. He does not say, We declared all these things unto you so that you would get saved. They did get saved, they were saved. They were new creatures in Christ Jesus. No, he's talking about something that goes beyond that. He's talking about something where you walk with God like Jesus walked with God on the earth. Jesus made some tremendous statements. During his earthly ministry. He said he that's seen the father has seen me. Man I'd, be, I'd like to be able to say that. Now why did Jesus live the life that he did? Because he had not experienced. He didn't have a body that had experienced the taint, the taint. The contamination of spiritual death. It was easy for Jesus not to sin. He didn't have the experience of sin in his flesh. It's a greater struggle for us against sin, against the influence and the temptation of sin. Because our bodies have experienced that spiritual death touch. And that's what makes God so merciful that he doesn't hold that against us. Righteousness comes by Jesus, the accepting of Jesus in his sacrifice. Fellowship comes. By living by faith. Living according to the word. Jesus said it this way. When he was tempted by the devil. He said man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Living by the word is living by faith. And remember God always looks on the heart. Man looks on the outside. The outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. God can see whether our heart is right or not. And he's the only one that can't. There's no point in me trying to judge you or you trying to judge me. You don't know what's in my heart and I don't know what's in yours. I assume the best. I assume the right things are in your heart. I assume you love God as much as I do or more. I assume that you want to do right and want to live up to who you've been created to be in Christ Jesus. 
So John's talking about fellowship. Jesus said, he that has seen the Father has seen me. He said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and that you always hear me when he stood before the tomb of Lazarus. He said, I only do those things which please my Father. That's the statement that gets me. That's the statement that the devil will try to use against us. Jesus said, I only do those things which please my Father. Well, I'm trying to do that too. But the devil's always right there to tell me how I messed up. He's always right there to tell me how I fall short. Folks, if righteousness was dependent on good or bad behavior, then righteousness would be an impossibility. But when God declared, their righteousness is of me, that takes away our works. That takes away our ability to affect things for whether we do good or do bad. That's where sin becomes, sinful behavior becomes a non-issue. Because our righteousness is not based on our righteous behavior. Our righteousness is based on the blood of Jesus. Now, if we have fellowship with the Father and if we have fellowship with the Son, and that's not the only place we should have fellowship. We should have fellowship with the Word. We should have fellowship with each other, as the Bible says in different places. But if our fellowship is with God the Father and our fellowship is with Jesus the Son, that means that we have to be able now with the effect of spiritual death still present in our bodies, our physical bodies. That means we have to be able to operate in the earth in the same way that Jesus did with his father. That means we have to have God with us just as much as Jesus had God with him. Otherwise, it's not fellowship. Fellowship makes us equals. Fellowship makes us join heirs. How could an unholy or unrighteous person be, have fellowship with God? No way. Say this after me. I am born again. I am made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, I have the same standing with God as Jesus has. I can do the same works that Jesus did on the earth because God is with me. God is my partner. That's what this means, folks. That's exactly what this means. Philippians 2 says, Let this same mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus who didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. Some people will say, if you make these kind of confessions and attempt to live up to this truth, some people will say, how arrogant could somebody be to expect to do the same works as Jesus? Well, the Bible says we've been made in his image. 
God is our father, isn't he? Children act like their fathers. We certainly expect children of the devil to act like them, act like him. Well, then what do children of God act like? How do children of God live if not in imitation of their father? I believe God resets our I don't even know how to say that. I believe God changes us through making us new creatures so that our natural condition is to walk by faith which pleases him. That's your natural condition. It is your nature. All the times where the devil comes and tells us that we're not really in faith or that we're not believing this or believing that strongly enough, whatever, however he attacks us, you know it as well as I do. All those are non-issues. There's one issue, and that is we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And Paul said by the Holy Ghost, that makes us rulers That gives us the ability to reign in life. I would recommend that you look at your life and see what areas you're not reigning in and attack those. In the beginning, God gave the world over into the hands of man. He told Adam to dress and keep the Garden of Eden. An explanation of that would be if things get out of hand, you take care of it. If things aren't the way they were supposed to be, if they're not the way that I made them to be from God's perspective, I mean, Adam, you take care of it. Don't come to me to fix it. You're in charge. Well, then reigning in life would not be looking for God to change things. but instead looking for things to change according to the authority that he's given us. I see this in the area of healing quite often. People are looking for God to do something to affect their healing or cure. Everything God's done has already been done. He's done all he's ever going to do to affect our healing. Jesus shed his precious blood, took stripes upon his back, to ensure, guarantee that the power of healing is available for each and every one of us. Well, then how do we appropriate it? Through reigning in life. It became apparent to me several years ago that too many people are looking for the power of God to fall from heaven. Instead of, to be, instead of being utilized from within. God, speaking of Israel in Isaiah 10, 27, said, I will lift the burden off their shoulders and take the yoke off their neck. 
and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The anointing is the power of God on the inside of us, the Holy Ghost on the inside of us. The earth is designed to respond to your words because you've been restored to a place of authority. And too many people are penetrating heaven with their prayers hoping that God will act. God will move. God will send power down. God will cause something to happen. And folks, if that's the way that it works, then that means we don't have offered blessings from God through the work of Jesus. It would mean we have promises that we're looking for the promiser to fulfill. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's not running errands back and forth. He's seated because the work is finished. The power of God is in you. Released and exercised through your words. And it is by the exercise of that authority through the spoken word that the anointing or the power of God within us affects the healing and a cure in our bodies. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 11. He said, since the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body. The word quicken means to make alive. He will quicken your mortal body. He will quicken your mortal body. Well, does he do that against your will? He can't. He has to have your agreement. The quickening power of the Holy Ghost then in our bodies is a result of the words that we speak. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, he sent his word and healed them. Didn't say he sent his word so that they'd pray and then God would heal them. He sent his word and healed them. The word tells us what's been done. And it's through the application, the pressure applied by our speaking God's word that brings the power of God to bear to change our situations. The power is in you. God hasn't reserved extra power in heaven saying, well, one of these days, I'm going to really turn it loose. Now, the Bible says you're complete in him. The Bible says you're filled with the fullness of God. Now, I understand there's a process. I understand that there's the renewing of the mind that needs to take place so that we come into this understanding. And the more we understand it, the more we grow in the knowledge of him, then the more available these things become. But the power's in you and me. The Holy Ghost doesn't need to be poured out from heaven because he's already been poured out in us. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life as by one Jesus Christ. We're destined to reign in life. We're destined to exercise authority and dominion in our lives right now. Our job is to act like that's true because it is. Our job is to put in practice that which he has revealed to us and that which has been done. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the exceeding great and precious promises that you've made unto us. We thank you, Father, for the life of God that dwells in each one of us because we've made Jesus our Lord and Savior. 
Father, you said that since we've accepted the free gift of righteousness through the saving blood of Jesus, you said that we would reign. And in comparison with the spiritual death that once ruled us, our position of authority and dominion is much greater than the certainty of spiritual death operating in us at one time. So we declare, Father, before heaven, earth, and hell, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We declare that we have dominion in this earth and in our lives to defeat all the work of the enemy. We declare that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus so our bodies are well. No matter the circumstance, no matter the symptoms, we declare that which is true, that we are healed. We declare that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Lord, you said in your word that the earth is yours in the fullness thereof. We know you didn't make it for the devil and his crowd. And so we claim the resources, the finances necessary to live, to provide for our families, and to do the work of God in Jesus' name. Satan, we refuse to fear. We refuse to doubt God's word because we are children of our Father. Thank you, Lord, that you've made us holy, able to stand before your presence, able to stand before our Father with no sense of guilt or condemnation or shame in any way whatsoever. We don't even need to remind you of the struggles that we're having in our bodies because we've been made righteous in him. Father, we do ask that the Holy Spirit would do the work Jesus said that he would do to open our eyes, to show us things to come, to bring all things to our remembrance that Jesus said, to lead us and to guide us into all reality, into all truth. Holy Spirit, we rely on you. We recognize our fellowship with you as a part of the plan of God. We thank you for being our, our, helper, our helper, our comforter, our strengthener, our standby. Show us, Lord, the exceeding greatness of your power in us as believers. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand together. I want to encourage you to meditate on some of these things. Because I know there's more than what we're seeing. But thank God we're starting to see it. God left you here on this earth to exercise authority and dominion in your life. We have a responsibility, I believe, to run the devil off in anything and everything that he's trying to do against us.
And the only way that influence is going to be broken is by us exercising our authority. It's not somebody else's prayers that's going to set us right. It's not somebody else's prayers that are going to bring us into victory. It's the confession of our mouth, the word of our testimony, and the exercise of our authority. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank him one more time. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for who you've made us to be. We are righteous in Christ Jesus. We do reign in life through that righteousness. We do have the power of God to conquer any situation and everyone that we come into contact with. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Say it with me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I reign in life over all the works of the devil. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love you. And you're dismissed.